Coming up in this podcast, vaccine mandates, potash projects, IPOs, mining evolution, charity funds, Perrin's plans, Bustleton Observatory and Ascot Capital. Welcome to Mark My Words, the weekly podcast from Business News with Mark Pownall and Mark Beyer discussing the important business news and data stories from Western Australia. Welcome to our weekly podcast and welcome Mark Beyer. Mark, first up, mandatory vaccinations seem to be at the forefront of the state government's strategy to open up. State government got very serious this week about mandating vaccinations against COVID-19. This is the latest step in what we've been uh, in a building trend over several months. Um, And in particular, in recent weeks, the government has widened uh, mandatory vaccinations to a whole range of industries, in particular, the resources sector. Uh, We've also seen quite a few private sector businesses follow suit. Uh, Rio Tinto, BHP, Woodside Petroleum have all said they're going down this path. But the government really stepped up midweek when the Premier came out and outlined this plan where uh, there'll be three categories of workers covers about 75% of the West Australian workforce uh, that will need to be vaccinated if they want to keep their job. Um, The first category is primarily people that are already covered by public health orders. Uh, So people in the healthcare, in the resources sector, um, in freight and ports and so on. Um, The second one, you know, this widens it out a lot. Uh, supermarkets, restaurants, bars and cafes, hardware stores, childcare, schools. They need to get their first dose by the end of the year, be fully vaccinated by January next year. And then there's a third category, uh, which applies everything from news agents to mechanics to um, farming and manufacturing, media services. Um, that applies in the event of a lockdown. I think what this really does is it gives us a lot more certainty and and accelerates the path towards hitting the crucial 80% double vaccination or fully vaccinated target for the West Australian population. That's where the Premier has talked about making a decision. Now, from my discussions with people around the Perth business community and the community more generally, they are desperate for answers about the path out of um, the current restrictions we face on interstate travel. Uh, We've seen New South Wales, Victoria, Queensland, all come out with details about removing restrictions and opening up to international travel. Um, And people wanna know, when is WA going to follow suit? Give us some certainty. That's what they're all calling for. Um, We don't have that at the moment. Um, The Premier has simply said, after we get somewhere between 80 and 90% fully vaccinated, he will make a decision, probably in December, but that the actual lifting of travel restrictions won't apply until sometime next year. Now, whether it's January, whether it's March, whether it's later, we really don't know. And people do want to know an answer to that. Yes, and I think this is the point, isn't it, that where the political dynamic is changing here is that the Premier has been, you know, pretty much had 90% of people behind him agreed and, you know, and that showed in the in the state election. But now we're getting to a different point and, you know, his political nous is telling him, 
with lots and lots of voices that he's going to have to start showing a plan. So he's trying to give as much as he can, I think, without committing and learn on the way where the, where the obstacles and hazards are. Um, and he's getting pressure from other states, getting pressure from internally, from business, and I think he's getting pressure from voters who are just saying, well, hang on, you know, it's two years since we visited our friends and relatives and, uh, you know, I attended a funeral at, during the week and uh, one of my mates could not come back for his dad's funeral from Melbourne. And I think that, you know, as much as he uh, felt, you know, okay, that's the way it is and everything like that, I think that's starting to wear thin, um, you know, and, and there's now a way, get vaccinated and you can stop all this, come on government, get on with it. So, you know, that seems to me my reading of it, that there's the, the pressure is starting to mount and the state government's starting to try to address it. Yep. And worth noting again, there's been a couple of uh, significant court rulings where people have challenged mandatory vaccinations in workplaces and governments have been supported very strongly by those court rulings. So anyone out there that thinks they can go to the Fair Work Commission or some other tribunal and and challenge this, uh, I think has got a very remote chance of success. Yeah, unless, of course, you know, individuals with particular health conditions, they can certainly get an exemption. That's always been the case. Um, but you need some, some strong medical evidence to back that up. Yeah. And look, you know, I flip this back, Mark. I mean, you know, I, I don't believe in governments mandating this and mandating that. Um, you know, there's got to be good reasons for it. Um, but I also kind of think, you know, some of, those, some of that anti-vaxxer thinking... Uh, uh, when when they felt that the vaccine was rushed and, you know, that potentially there were uh, problems to come with it. Well, I don't, you know, we're here kind of close to a year later with vaccinations and, you know, there's no... It's not really proving the case, has it? You know, there's not a lot of evidence that despite large amounts of people being vaccinated, not just here but around the world, that there's any issue, grave issues with it. So, and, and there's compelling evidence of the health benefits of getting the vaccine. Correct. I think the science is very clear. And look, and that's what I'm hearing that, you know, in the UK, I mean, I'm hearing from friends, everyone's got it there. And people who've had the virus are getting it again. So, you know, it's not that the vaccine stops it, it just reduces the symptoms so that we can all not go end up on respirators in, in hospital. All right, moving on. Um, really interesting developments in the potash uh, sector. And it's sort of, to me, this contrasts the long-term opportunity against the short-term pain. Sulfate of potash, it's a key ingredient in fertilisers and it's been seen as a very big growth opportunity for Western Australia. Um, like many resources, Western Australia is blessed um, in this regard. There's been at least half a dozen companies that have been working to develop projects in this space, um, all in very remote locations, um, basically salt lakes out in the desert um, where they're going to extract the resource. So really big infrastructure challenges around this and also some very significant uh, sort of in technical engineering challenges around the processing. And we're starting to see um, evidence of this. Um, so there's been, look, there's been some good news and bad news in this space. Yeah. The bad news, Salt Lake Potash has gone into receivership. So they were one of the first ASX-listed companies to hit production in this area. 
Um, they've taken on some very substantial debt, about $170 million, uh, but they needed to raise more money to um, invest further in their processing plant to get everything working as effectively as they'd been hoping. Um, now, they had some serious backing. Ian Middlemas, very well-known dealmaker in Perth, yeah, was chairman of the company. Um, but they weren't able to get away the extra funding that they needed. Um, so they've gone into receivership. What did they need, sorry? How much funding? Well, look, that hasn't been specified, but speculation was maybe $40, $50 million. Um, a second company, Kalium Lakes, now they've gone out to the market with a major refinancing. Um, they're raising about 50 million of new capital, but they've also refinanced their debt. They're postponing interest payments. They're postponing royalty payments. So these are signals of a, a project that's under significant financial stress. Yeah. And what's important about these is that it's not just private money going into these projects. It's very substantial taxpayer money has gone into these projects through an agency called the Northern Australia Infrastructure Fund, or sorry, Northern Australia Infrastructure Facility. As the name implies, it's all about promoting big projects in the north of the country. In practice, most of that money has gone into mining projects or mining related. Uh, so government's got money in Salt Lake Potash, government's got money in Kalium Lakes, uh, so taxpayers' dollars is at risk here. And there's a lot more taxpayer money going into the sector via BCI Minerals. They're the big, um, they've got the biggest project in this sector. That's a company backed by Kerry Stokes. He, of course, has very deep pockets himself, and he's got some really big shareholders in there with him. Their project, called Marty, it's a salt and a potash project, total cost is about $1.2 billion dollars taxpayers are providing half that. Um, most of that's coming from the Northern Australia Infrastructure Facility. There's another agency called Export Finance Australia. They're tipping in $110 million. These are in the form of loans. So if all goes well, the loans will be repaid. Um, but as we've seen from Salt Lake Potash, yeah. that won't necessarily happen. Not suggesting that's the case here. You know, BCI Minerals has a lot more... Um, heavyweight private sector backing. But look, it just throws up a really interesting question about the role of government money. You know, where do you draw the line about uh, supporting private projects? You know, traditionally, it's infrastructure, public user infrastructure, that a whole range of things like ports, that a whole range of people can use. Um, but this is money going directly into individual projects. So look, there's a great opportunity here we hope these projects, you know, things like Salt Lake get restructured, that Kalium Lakes comes good, that BCI gets up a successful project. Um, and we need them to be so that taxpayers' money doesn't get blown on these. Yeah, and you're right. Normally, governments spend money on infrastructure, or, you know, like, say, they build a port. And if a project fails, well, the port's still there. It's infrastructure for future use, not just for that particular project, potentially, if a new proponent comes in and takes it over but for other projects in the area, potentially. So, yeah, this is a difference, um, and it's intriguing, uh, especially when, you know, and again, in my introduction, we talked about long-term opportunity versus short-term pain. I mean, BHP's 
an example of someone who's betting hugely that potash is going to be massive. So their their projects in Canada. In Canada, right? Yep. Yeah, of yep. course. But the point is that it's it's not like anyone thinks that there isn't money in potash. So it's it's but is it the state government or federal government's role to be you know getting in and actually backing individual projects in this way? Hmm. All right. Let's wait and see. Um, now, Mark, a bit of a shift. There's been a few big company floats, uh, WA company floats, outside of mining. Yeah, and look, in a, in a weird way, this ties in with our previous story because these the, the stock market, and in particular, the market for new listings, is red hot at the moment. You know, there is so much money floating around out there yeah. looking for a home. People are keen to invest. Um, and... There are several WA stories here outside the mining sector um, that are great. APM, they're a, a very successful Perth-based business. Um, essentially, they provide a whole range of employment services, disability, health services to governments. So it's an outsourcing of services that used to be provided by public servants. Uh, set up by a Perth woman, Megan Wynn. Um, she's had serious backing from private equity over the years. Um, they're a global business, got revenue north of a billion dollars and listing on the stock market. <coughs> and they've locked in the final terms for that. They're going to raise $972 million. Now, that makes it, uh, I think, the second largest IPO, if not the largest IPO that's ever happened in Western Australia. Um, some of the others like Emico, Alinta Infrastructure, Multiplex, all raised a bit less than that. Um, so look, this is a very significant transaction for WA. They've got Goldman Sachs in there backing them, um, and they've had very strong support from the investor community. So APM, that's one to watch out for. Um, another one, um, this is more of a sort of a tech story in the health space, Health Engine, um, a long-running Perth business all about online medical bookings set up by um, Marcus Tan and Adam Yap, two local people, both 40 under 40 winners. Uh, They're moving closer to launching their IPO. Talk is that they're looking to raise about $100 million. Uh, We recently reported they converted from a proprietary company to a unlisted public company. And then this week they've brought in some new uh, people on their board. Um, Susan Forrester, they're all East Coast people. Um, She's involved with Plenty Group and Jumbo Interactive, amongst others. Greg Highwood, who used to be Chief Executive of Fairfax, and Shane Solomon. So they've got some really strong names there coming onto their board. So that's sort of a good sign for the health engine float. And then the third example, Artria. I think that's the right pronunciation. Yeah, I think you're right. Uh, set up by John Barrington, so very well known. John's, I guess, best known as a, a management consultant um, and advisor, um, so well known in the Perth business community. Uh, but he decided a couple of years ago to go out there and start running his own business. Um, so it was this startup that came out of research from uh, UWA, the Perkins Institute, and a, a Canadian research institute. And it's about um, a novel way of using artificial intelligence to diagnose um, preconditions for heart attacks. Um, They've been going for uh, two or three years. 
Um, they've already invested about $20 million in R&D, and then this week they've lodged a prospectus to raise $40 million and list on the ASX, and that'll value them at a bit north of $105 million. So we talk a lot about trying to diversify the Western Australian economy, um, and this medical technology sector is always seen as a big opportunity. Um, so great to see John Barrington and his team at Artria uh, making progress in that regard. Yeah, look, it's quite a story, and uh, look, I appreciate you know those companies. The numbers are quite big, you know. We, you know, we, of course, you do see large mining floats, but a lot of mining stuff is very small, and you know, 40, 100 million plus, you know, APM, it's a much bigger number. I mean, you know, it's just great to see and it's part of the diversity of our economy that, you know, people often ignore, but uh, there is quite a lot going on and great that some of it's tech related. Um, now, Mark, uh, two WA charities have raised a combined 69 million in the past week. Look, I think there's a two very spectacular stories uh, one of them is the uh, telethon was held last weekend, so that's through the, the Channel 7 Telethon Trust. $62 million um, raised over the course of the weekend. Uh, quite spectacular, up from $46 million in the previous year. So this basically goes into medical research, in particular through the Telethon Kids Institute and a range of other of sort of medical research organisations in WA will be the beneficiaries of this. Two big chunks of government money in there, state and federal government collectively put in $15 million, but it's also a measure of the amount of money swirling around in the mining industry. Uh, Rio Tinto and BHP both tipped in $4 million, uh, Mineral Resources put in a couple of million, uh, West Farmers, um, but also some of the big charitable foundations in Western Australia um, Tim Roberts Giving uh, put in a couple of mil, uh, the Stan Perrin Charitable Foundation put in three, um, Kerry Stokes Private Company, Australian Capital Equity tipped in a lot of money, um, as well as all the mums and dads that support it. But, you know, I guess it's a measure of, as I say, there's lots of money floating around Western Australia and uh, amazing that they can raise that much. The other one that's at a more grassroots level and, you know, arguably therefore more commendable, is the Macca Cancer 200 Ride for Research. Yeah. Now the beneficiary here is the Harry Perkins Institute of Medical Research. This event's been going for about 10 years. Over that period of time, they've raised $50 million. No, it's, a, it's a big number, isn't it? And so the most recent one was an all-time high, $7 million. Um, I remember looking at these charity bike rides a few years ago, um, you know, after the last boom, and I remember posing the question, you know, how can they possibly sustain the high levels of funding? Um, and yet here we are, we've come around again. And look, teams from, there was, what, 1,500 participants. So one, it says a lot about, a lot of people in Perth love their cycling um, and prepared to, you know, do some good as a result of it. Uh, the team from Macca... Take, the, what, take their $10,000 bike and race. Well, that too, <laughs> yes. They do put a lot of money into their bikes and their gear. Um, but look, the team from Macca raised $1.3 million. Uh, Woodside had a team that raised about $300,000. Uh, Mineral Resources, McMahon Holdings, they all had teams in there raising very serious amounts of money. Yeah. Um, 
And as I say, I think it's really commendable when it's just, you know, individual punters who are getting out there, doing it, and then getting their network of friends to support them. Look, I, I agree. I mean, look, I guess there's a couple of observations. First of all, Mark, you know, the sustainability of this. Well, the truth is that um, when you did that, and I remember when you did that sort of article that looked at all that stuff, it was at the peak of the boom or just after the peak. And and there, and a lot of that stuff has dropped away. So I think the, the Perkins uh, one is, is sort of like a survivor event. And it's done really well, but I think some of the others have disappeared or waned significantly. And well, other- it was pretty mentioned there. I mean, Youth Focus. Yes. They've got their ride for youth. That's another one that has survived. Yes. But you're right. Other charity events have come and gone over the years. And it's yep. a- And those rides have also been a bit lucky in WA that COVID has... I think COVID knocked Youth Focus in 2020, but, but it's been, you know, that they've been able to keep going, whereas in, in other states they may have struggled. Um, the other observation around Telethon is, uh, you know, I was looking through at the donations and thinking, okay, it has changed a lot. You know, it used to be, you know, and as kids, we sat there and watched it and it was people ringing in and, you know, and you rang in and you gave you $20 or your 50 bucks or whatever it was. So this is really different. I, I don't know how much of that 60 plus million is, um, is from people phoning in, you know, the, the average punters. And then you've got this, these large dollops you know, it's all about headline creating to get the biggest number. And state government in there, which again, to me, is like a little curious. I kind of I don't really see the state government's role to be donating money to a charity. Um, but anyway, it has done. And that's the problem. Once you've committed $10 million, the next year people say, well, why don't you give us a bit more? So, uh, you know, I, I, I kind of, to me, we're not comparing apples with apples there, to be honest. Um Anyway, nevertheless, it's great and it's good to see that money and I do appreciate that some of those big corporates and some of those very wealthy individuals are, you know, putting their money where their mouth is and that's awesome. Um, now, Mark, uh, the Busseton Underwater Observatory is going ahead. It's quite a significant tourism development down in the southwest. If people haven't seen the artist impressions of the new uh, underwater observatory plan for Busselton Jetty, I'd encourage them to jump onto our story or just sort of Google uh, Underwater Discovery Centre at Bustleton Jetty. It's really quite a spectacular proposal that's been put forward there. And this week, the city, city of Bustleton has recommended that the project be approved by the Development Assessment Panel. Uh, a lot of listeners would know that there's already an underwater observatory um, at the end of what's about, I think, one and a half kilometres out on Bustleton Jetty. Absolutely. Um, it's about 16 years old and it's got, for a limited capacity, I think it only fits about 45 people. Um, this new proposal is one, I mean, it, it, it looks like a whale breaching and coming out of the water there. Uh, I always discourage my journalists from using the word iconic because I think it's one of the most overused words in the English language but if this project gets up it really will be iconic and I think it's one of those things that we often call for people talk about it in Perth as well you know a spectacular tourist attraction that's really going to get attention and draw people to a destination and I think this is one of those rare examples of a, a project that 
warrants the use of that word. Yeah, um, I agree with you on the word iconic there. And I also, uh, when I first heard that it was going to be look like a breaching whale, I thought, oh, goodness me, this could be one of those really kitsch kind of disasters. But from what I've seen, it does look good. Um, I guess the question around it is, can it work? You know, because something that looks interesting from the outside still takes some real effort to make it work on the inside. Yeah, and look, the um, well, perhaps just to mention a couple of things about the scale of this, it'll be 20 metres tall, be across four levels. Um, there'll be a sort of a function room and an art gallery included in it. And then adjacent to it, there'll be a new restaurant facility with room for 300 people. So, you know, a very significant attraction. The number that's been floated in the public domain is it'll cost about $32 million. Um, state and federal governments have already put in about 22, but there's further funding that needs to come forward. This is all through a not-for-profit group, Bustleton Jetty, Inc. Now, the big risk that they're facing is that, like a lot of projects in Western Australia, they're facing very substantial cost increases at the moment. Now, we're hearing some talk that this project may be affected. Um, that wouldn't surprise. Um, as we discussed in our podcast last week, you know, everything from mining projects to aquaculture projects to apartment developments are facing very big cost increases, you know, 30, 35% are numbers that we're hearing. Yeah. So this is going to be a real challenge here getting the people they need, getting the materials in, and getting them in a cost-effective way. Uh, no, absolutely. And, uh, you know, and I, think, I think from my understanding, that uh, structure is going to be built, I think, in Perth or south of Perth and yep. then shipped down. So there's a lot of... Uh, there's a lo and it's steel, and we already know where steel prices are going. So pretty fascinating uh, as to see whether they, they can really hold it to that kind of number. Yeah. Um, now, Mark, uh, Coburn is the focus for the Perrin Groups, a big new plans for retail development. Perrin Group is looking to spend about a billion dollars down at Coburn. And so this is already a substantial town centre down there, you know, with a large shopping centre and other facilities um, on the railway line, on the freeway, and servicing those growing southern suburbs. Yeah. Uh, but they're planning, as I say, a very large expansion. Uh, this has just gone through the State Development Assessment Unit. They've recommended that the WA Planning Commission approve the development, so I think it's pretty much guaranteed that it'll go through. But just worth sort of reflecting on this and I guess what it says about the evolution of Perth, um, it's a phased development over 10 to 15 years, but it's well, there's a couple of great bits of um, jargon that have been introduced here in their application. Hyper-local living. Mm -hmm. So but this is a concept, it's a very fancy bit of jargon for the whole idea about having that so you can live and shop and work and recreate all in the same area. So they're going to include cinemas, childcare centres, um, there'll be apartments and townhouses, there'll be a hotel. Um, so look, this is you know, really transforming or taking that whole neighbourhood to another level. Um, the other one, the other bit of jargon that developers love talking about now in relation to shopping centres is experiential. You don't just go there to do your shopping, you go there to have an experience. Yeah. 
Um, and we're seeing similar things at places like Carousel and Caranup, which have gone through major expansions and upgrades. There's a whole range of things there to do, a whole lot more than the old food court. You know? <laughs> Uh, lots of food and drink options, but entertainment options and cinemas and so on. Yeah, right. Um, so it looks, yeah, it, it's um, a really significant shift in the way that people are seeing these assets. And there's a whole lot of, you know, what's old is new again. There's a whole lot of um, repurposing that's now becoming, you know, like we've seen shopping centres have to repurpose themselves from straight retail to do this entertainment thing. Now we're seeing the expansion of these shopping centres to incorporate more of the entertainment. And then again, you're right, the living part is the other fascinating bit. And, you know, I guess maybe not everyone's idea of, you know, the dream home is part of a large retail shopping complex and entertainment complex, but for others, you know, that's perfect. Uh, you know, and I, and I guess looking at that southern suburbs, it, it, it probably needs that big central hub anyway so Coburn and Perrin are obviously deciding they're gonna they're gonna make it theirs and in terms of apartments and townhouses in a you know in close in a town center to me it's all about choice yes. yeah most people can still live in their suburban house with their backyard yeah but if you want something different we're giving people choices yeah that's right um, and you know you're right on the train line so you can get into work if you work in the city very easily and then you've got the extra work from home scenario that's, you know, another big part of people's choices now. Now, finally, Mark, um, Ascot Capital has sold out of most of its remaining portfolio in WA. Ascot Capital, a privately held property developer, uh, Greg King and a couple of other guys set it up, I think, 15, 20 years ago. They've just sold uh, assets worth a collective $2.1 billion. So it sheds a lot of light on just how significant their business had become. Yeah. And interesting, drive down Stirling Highway, there's a very nondescript little building there just after the university with Ascot Capital signage out the front. Yeah. You wouldn't appreciate that behind that door, um, there's a group of people that have pulled together. A, two billion in funds. A $2 billion portfolio. And about to make the next investment well, decision process, is that right? Indeed. Um, so look, the latest one, uh, GPT, big listed group, they've bought a portfolio of logistics and office assets for nearly 700 mil. Uh, they sold a, a smaller portfolio to another listed company, MA Financial Group. And then a couple of weeks ago, we spoke about the sale of Jandicott Airport and the surrounding industrial estate for 1.3 billion dollars yeah now i think in all these cases and particularly jandicott airport it's a story about getting in early acquiring the asset and then developing it and adding value yeah. and clearly they've added a lot of value here and look the driver there according to greg king is that quote when you get a lot of offers on your assets you've got an obligation to have a look at what the market's doing and this is this thematic we keep on hearing about, so much money swirling around looking for a home. So GPT, they've bought this portfolio of assets. The yield is only 4.3%. So you know, that's what a big institutional investor is prepared to pay yeah. for uh, you know, a large industrial and office portfolio. Um, 
I know a lot of private investors are seeking a whole lot more than that when they're investing. Um, but when interest rates are sub 1%, 4.3 on a diversified asset, you know, property portfolio is seen as okay. Yeah. You know, the world is changing. No, absolutely. Interesting, Mark, you know, I've had a few conversations around Jandicott Airport of late. Um, you know, they bought it at a bargain based on price in a way because, and I'm not sure whether they got it all rezoned or whether they just used the, you know, the, the benefits of having Commonwealth land like Perth Airport has to change the whole mix, but they turned it into an industrial and partly retail complex. Um, and they added lots and lots of, you know, costs. And I hear this from private aircraft owners who found that, you know, that they couldn't use Jandicott anymore, became unaffordable. So that's how they, you know, they readjusted the way that Jandicott operated and changed it. Now, okay, I guess the previous owner could have done that, but they certainly profited massively from it. Um, and uh, basically forced private aircraft, many, many private aircraft users, not all of them, but lots of them to go out further out. So I think Serpentine's now a big airfield for private uh, owners, where before they would have been in Janicott, you know. Um, and that's part of the growth of the city, I accept that, that but it's kind of interesting this, you know, property developers can do very well from buying an asset and then changing its usage, uh, as we know. Um, anyway, it's a big change, and and uh, there's a there's a it's interesting to watch someone make that kind of long term move uh, and profit from it and see what they're going to do next. We'll, we'll watch with very keen interest. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks, Mark. Um, appreciate all of that. Uh, check out the final edition of Business News's Promoting Perth series, developed in conjunction with the Committee for Perth. The last edition looks at our world leaders across industry and academia. It is a lift out in our last magazine, or go to our website and click the Publications tab to find a digital replica. It's free to read. I hope you enjoyed this podcast, and thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Mark My Words with Mark Powell and Mark Bayer from Business News. For more information, please go to businessnews.com.au forward slash podcasts. And to receive these regularly, search for Business News WA in iTunes or SoundCloud.